As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a well, the owner of a comic book store. Trust me, true believer. Well, Jagger and me, we had a running contest to see who had the most comic books in the world. Whatever, my skate was um, comic books. Net profit to me, negative $59. I love the comics because of the brightness displayed by the fellows who drew them. They remained remain with me always, and when comic books first came into being, it drew me to them. Tales from the Comic Shop Hey, welcome to Tales from the Comic Shop, the show that takes you behind the counter. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm joined by Eddie D'Angelini and Roger Prouse. How are you guys doing? Doing good. This is Eddie. I am the co-owner of Heidi Ho Comics and the writer-artist-creator of the webcomic Collectors. Doing awesome, Joe. And you know what I realize is we never ask you how you're doing. How are you, Joe? <laughs> oh, I'm a little sad. I have to put my 15-year-old dog down in the next few days. Thanks for oh. asking, Roger. <laughs> oh, man, I, I chose the wrong episode to ask that question. <laughs> It's all right. It's all right. He's had a great run. He's the best dog I've ever owned. Um, I will miss him very much. I don't know that I'll ever get over losing him, but um, I'm going to enjoy the time we have left as much as I can. A blessing and the curse with animals, man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so <laughs> uh, news this week. We've got that... Uh, We've got the uh, Keanu Reeves sign, John Wick, coming out. It's the, what is it, 1 in 1,000 variant? It's not John Wick, it's Berserker. Yeah, oh, Berserker. And is that the Keanu Reeves book? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very John Wickish type book. Like, it's a big action book, but it's not um, it's not actually John Wick. It's its own. It's uh, Keanu Reeves actually wrote the book. It's his own creation. Okay, that's, that, yeah, that's okay. I, I I didn't realize that. I saw the cover and just assumed it was John Wick. So it's <laughs> it's it's um, it's him and Matt Kent um, that wrote the book together. Huh. Interesting. Apparently, from talking to the people at Boom, he's been really hands on. Like, he chose all the covers for it handpicked a lot of the artists like apparently he's been really hands-on with creating this this book i'm not surprised by that he's a very creative type i mean you know even when he was like the biggest movie star in the world in the 90s he still had he was still doing club concerts with his band uh, what was it yeah. dog shine Dogs, dog dog, dog star. star dog star and um I mean, you know, everyone seemed. I mean, no one, no one says a bad thing about the guy. But I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that he's, you know, heavily involved with his comic. Yep. No, from what I understand, he's uh, he's very hands on with it. So yeah, they announced um, yesterday that they're adding a one in one thousand variant to the book, which will be uh, drawn by John Boy Myers. They do have art out if you want to see it, but it's actually going to be autographed by Keanu. Um, for that particular variant as well. One in 1,000. Now, for those who don't know, that means us shops, we have to order 1,000 copies of the regular cover just to get one of those variants. Yes. That's a lot of For this book, is around $2,000. And if you've been paying attention, we did a whole episode explaining how all that works. So go back and give it a listen if you are not clear on the process. Yeah, no, so one thing about that, though, with Boom specifically, is every company does it a little bit different. 
as far as their their exclusives. And Boom is unique in the fact that they have what's called their Boom Guarantee Program. Um, and their Boom Guarantee Program makes it so that if you order a whole lot of books from, enough, from something that qualifies for the Boom Guarantee, um, which I'm almost positive this one does with all their big new releases do, um, you can, they're 100% returnable because they want them getting in readers' hands and they don't want shops selling out too low while readers can't get them. Um, so adding this one in 1000 is going to make it so that the regular cover for this is going to be plenty well distributed and available. And so anybody that was worried about maybe missing out on this one or that they wouldn't get one when it releases, I don't think that'll be too much of a problem because I think you'll get one this fine. Yeah. That's going to be a lot of copies that, uh, are going to get returned. Yeah. No, there's going to be a lot of returns. <laughs> but that being said, this book is getting serious hype. So I think that it's going to yeah. be. Um, a lot sold too. I mean, Boom, oh, I, Boom yeah. has ba- Boom said today. Um, you know, I, I saw um, someone in there in, in from from Boom that said they fully expect this to be their biggest release of all time, and they didn't think it was going to be close. I agree. I think it's probably going to be one of the biggest releases of the year. Period. It's just unless you're a big shop, it's tough to sell through a thousand copies. I mean, yes, even with is. the hype, <laughs> even with the hype, I might sell through maybe what a hundred at most. Yeah, I mean, I definitely there are ones that I've sold through more than 100 and there are certainly ones where the hype's big enough that you can sell more than 100. Sure. I mean, I could have sold 500 copies of Latrona if I had it, you know. But that was because those ones kind of crept up on people. This I don't think this book's creeping up on anybody. Well, I'm going to have to check as of today, do you know, Roger, if um that book has already been on or is coming up on FOC? Uh I do not believe it has been on FOC yet. I'm not positive because okay. I don't run the FOC, but I believe that I know it got delayed. And I think because of the delay, it's, it's not gone on FOC yet because it was supposed to be releasing early February. And I think it got oh, delayed. Yeah. To and, and then the pandemic and the February. lockdown threw all that yeah. out the window. Yeah. Because there were a lot of people that were anticipating it. And there were a lot of people who thought they missed it already. You know, explain to a lot of people that no, it's just been delayed and we don't know exactly when. So yeah, originally it was supposed to be October 7th. Now it's pushed back to February 17th. All right. In other news, Roger bought a shop. Yeah. So actually the shop I bought is the longest running comic shop in Utah as well. So it's been in business, I believe, since 1991, if I remember right. Um, Yeah, it was coming up on its 30th anniversary this year. Um, So basically, I mean, we've I think we've briefly touched on this on the show before, but like. Um, I know Eddie is the same way as I am, where we try to keep friends with all of the other shops in the area, get to know people. And, and you know, we don't consider ourselves, you know, it's it's we're, we're, we're allies in the industry more than we are competition. And so, uh, you know, I, this is one of those areas where one of the shop owners that we had made friends with over time, we're on vacation down in Phoenix. This is on the first. And on the first, I get a call um, and I actually didn't get the call. Charles fielded the call. Um from Dave who owned the shop who said, Hey, I am looking to retire. I need to move back, take care of my parents in, um, in California. And, um, I want to sell my shop. Do you guys want to buy it? And we said, yes. (laughs) And it went from on the first, uh, saying, Hey, do you want to buy our shop? And we bought it. We had it in our possession by the 14th. I think the, I believe it was the 17th that we took possession of the store. Somewhere right around that range. So yeah, it was about a two week span. We went from not knowing that it was even a possibility to own a shop to now owning that shop. So it was, it was nuts (laughs) and it moved fast. Yeah. It sounds similar to what my story was because 
for those who don't know, I didn't start a shop. I bought into a shop and it was the same kind of deal. Uh, the question was posed and then all of a sudden it just moved really fast. And before you knew it, uh, there you were in your new shop. And yeah, it's, um, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And having gone through it, all I can say, Roger, is you're going to have a lot of fun finding and cleaning up the old owner's messes. So yeah, I, my my shop wasn't quite like yours, Eddie. Um, I don't think the guy. Uh, I think this guy had been been looking to sell for a bit and been kind of preparing for it, and 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 frankly, he never seemed to put that much into this shop anyhow, as far as product and stuff is concerned. And so you know, there's only product, but there's not. I don't think there's a lot of surprises waiting for us, um, which is unfortunate. I actually kind of hoped for that, <laughs> but. Uh, um, you know, one of the things that we're going to change about the store, frankly, is that it's half empty. So we're going to fill that sucker up. It's exciting. I will tell you that he was telling us when he so he had actually bought the shop from a, a previous owner. And he was saying that when he got in there and was cleaning out drawers, he found an ASM one sitting in a file cabinet in the back room um, oh, when he had taken Lord. over the shop. Jeez. Yeah. Now it was it was it was half cover. Um, and still, that's a nice little file cabinet. It find. And, it, and, and to give you an idea, I think he said it was three years after he bought the shop before he looked through that file cabinet of how, you know, how much the shop was that way, you know, when he bought it. But it definitely wow. was a lot more organized when we when we purchased it. Um, similar. So it was a little bit different. Uh, we had a, kind of a similar uh, thing as well. It, when we took over ours, it had a kind of upstairs loft that was used as the storage room. There was just stuff in there going back. I don't know how far and just everywhere. And it took us a good year or two to really get through most of it. And there was one day when I was up there going through a bunch of comics that were just piled up everywhere. And there was just a stack of like old, you know, Bronze Age Dazzler and Micronauts and, you know, stuff that's just garbage. And sandwiched in between those was just a really nice copy of, uh, Spidey 129, just nice. just chilling in between chilling there, huh? no bag, no board, no nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, yeah, um, you, you literally are going to be – you're going to be cleaning up the literal messes of the past owner, but also the, you know, other messes like, um, you know, dealing with their pool customers who have gotten used to being – things be, being very lax. That's and, That's been the biggest um, – Thing that we have to get rid of honestly that's, yeah that that's was been, that uh, was a big thing for us too because we really <clears throat> we really had to go through get rid of the customers that were like weeds and retrain a lot of the rest to let them know that this is our policy and this is we, what we expect from you we were more worried about that than i think so far has come to fruition um i was expecting a lot more of that because a lot of the way that the store had been run before was very much. I don't want to. I don't want to say bad things about Dave because he's a great guy, but he was not a business guy first. Let's just say that. Sure. Um, and so there was definitely some things that we're just going to have to change in order for the store to be able to stay open. You know, so far people have been pretty understanding and people have been pretty good about it. So you know, fingers crossed that continues. But so far uh, we haven't had too much of a problem and it's, and it's been pretty good. So and we've been. I mean, the store's been outpacing its sales projections so far. It's only been a week, but that week's been real mm-hmm. strong. We did. Um, you know, I went in one of the things that it was a major change right off the bat is he had he was one of those old school guys who everything got priced off of Over Street. <laughs> yeah. And so I immediately went in and repriced everything. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, the very first time I'm in there, we're kind of taking the tour of the store to see if we want to do it and kind of agreeing to the whole thing in store. 
and I'm in the back room and his guy's there pricing books and he pulls out a newsstand copy of Spawn One, pretty good grade. And he's like, and he puts a tag on I'm like, oh, wow, that's a nice book. You know, congratulations. Find that in a box. That's great. And I go to leave and I look over and they got it listed for $8. Oh, dear God. Yeah. And I'm like, that's eight bucks. He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'll buy that right now. He goes, oh, you can have it. I'm like, really? Oh, and so, man. you know, obviously that's not an $8 book. Um, but to the flip side of that, when I went in my very first day working in Dr. Volts, um, I spent a full eight hour shift just repricing Silver Age books. Yeah. I did not price up a single book. Every single book went down, most of them by 50% or more um, because yeah. he had it listed as book price and all that non-key Superman and old Dell comics and gold key comics that the book said was 50 bucks. It's actually selling for 10, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we priced a lot of that down um, and really slashed prices um, really across the board in that store for the most part. I think two items in the whole store went up in price and I the entire rest of the eight hours was spent putting items down in price. Yeah. Um, and then a couple books we pulled because we figured they were better to go to CGC. Um, yeah. So they're going that range. Yeah, I totally get that because like you've been in my shop and you see we have that big section discount silver and bronze age stuff because it's stuff that even though maybe the guide says it should be 20 or $30, you're not going to get that price. But if I put it you in there straight for- straight up never going to get it. Yeah, you're never going to get it. But if I put it in the discount section for like, you know, $4.99 or $9.99, I'll sell it that day. And I'd rather take that than just leave it on the shelf forever. No, but I think that's something absolutely. with comics especially that a lot of people don't get is that it's better to sell your stock than to just sit on it indefinitely, even if you're getting less than you think it's worth. Exactly. Yeah, you oh, just got to be smart about how you buy it. You got to make the right decisions on purchasing. Once you've yeah. got purchase. Once you got a purchase, it does not matter what you spent on it. It's worth what it's worth. It's worth what you can sell it for. So it doesn't really matter what you spent on it at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have a question about, so when you take over the store, what happens to the previous staff? Are you retraining them to work for you guys? Yeah, so, or? I mean, we really get to decide that. This store really didn't have much of a staff. It was mostly Dave running it himself. We took one of our employees from our store, promoted him to manager over that store to take Dave's role. Um, the couple employees that he did have, we had an employee meeting to talk to him, tell him some of the things that were going to change, some of the things that weren't going to change. We kept all of them on. Um, they're all great dudes. I mean, luckily, I knew most of them to at least some extent already. And they're all great. Um, and the ones that I have met now that I didn't know, I'm, I'm, you know, I have no reason to think I don't want them there. So um, they were actually really excited when we got talking about the plans and the things we're going to do and some of the some of the things we're going to improve on the employees were by the time the end of that meeting ended, you know, they were all in and they were all super excited. So, um, so it went well, but I mean, realistically, that's our decision. If we had brought somebody in and found, you know, for whatever reason, decided we didn't want them there, we could have let them go, but we did, didn't have any reason to. Well, I definitely want to say congrats. That's like, that's a big step and you got a lot of work ahead of you, but I think you got, I think you're real, you and your brother, you're totally up to it. And I think you'll do uh, really great things with it. And I think that, uh, this is probably a good time for us soon to do that part two of starting your own comic shop and have it focus on what it's like to buy an existing shop. I'm in. All right. I agree. We'll have to do that soon. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to have new big news soon too. I can't announce it yet, but um, hopefully by the next time we do this, I'll have new big news. 
All right. Well, we'll look forward to hearing about it. Um, I think it's time to move along, and we're going to jump into what this episode is about. And we are doing something a little different, a little less uh, retail or industry insider base this week. But with the end of 2020, we have decided that we are going to do each of our top 10 books for the last decade. They're not really, it's not really the best. It's not like the best selling books. It's not our, it's our, it's a mix of our favorite books or books that we want you guys to read because we enjoyed them a lot is I guess the best way to explain what we're doing here. So I'm going to kick things off. And my first book for the 2010s that is essential for every comic collector is Batman Elmer Fudd. Great story. Tom King wrote it. It's not what you would expect. It's it's much more serious. It's a much more serious tale. It's a story. It's it's, it's a kind of a love story. It's kind of a mystery. It involves Silver St. Cloud and Elmer Fudd in a relationship. Say, or Elmer Fudd thinks that Bugs Bunny has murdered Silver St. Cloud. And Bugs, in exchange for his life, tells Elmer that Bruce Wayne is the one who paid to have her killed. And the story just kind of goes from there. It's not drawn tradition. It's not drawn like Looney Tunes. Everyone is kind of interpreted as a real person, as what they would look like as a real person. So, like, Tweety Bird is a smaller guy, but he's a human. Porky Pig's the bartender, and he has a pig nose, but he's a he's a person. Bugs has buck teeth, but he's a person. And it's just it's a great read. I can't recommend it enough. Go check that one out. I had actually forgotten that one existed, Joe. I'm I'm kind of glad that you uh, you reminded us of that. My number nine book is Legend of Korra Turf Wars. For those of you who don't know, Legend of Korra is the continuation of Avatar The Last Airbender, the television series. Where Legend of Korra left off was with the main character, Korra, and uh, another member of Team Korra, Asami, going on a, quote-unquote, vacation together, and they walk off holding hands, and it's ambiguously presented that they are now a couple. But it's never confirmed. It's never spoken about. There's no relationship-defining talk or PDA or anything to give you this to, to confirm it. So Legend of Korra Turf Wars picks up immediately where the series ended, and it begins with them defining their relationship. It's very well done, very well handled, very very adult, very real feeling relationship. It's drawn by Irene Coe, who just does an amazing job. The uh, art in this book is spectacular. I have the library edition, so it's all three chapters collected in one in a hardback, and I absolutely recommend picking one up. It's uh, printed by Dark Horse, and I can't say enough good things about Legend of Korra Turf Wars. My number eight book is Thanos Wins. For those of you who don't remember, that was, I believe, Donny Cates' second attempt at a Marvel book after Doctor Strange. It's excellent. It introduced Cosmic Ghost Rider, Silver Surfer with Thor's Hammer, and, you know, it does what it says. Thanos wins. And it's just an excellent, like, I think it's five issues. It might be six. Six Six-issue arc. Uh, It's presented in the 2016 Thanos, I believe. And yeah, I mean, everyone knows who Cosmic Ghost Rider is at this point. It's a, uh, it's, it's just a great, really fun read. It's Kate's, it's when it's Kate's doing everything he does really well, really, really well in like five quick issues. I'd like to give 
and also shout out to that Doctor Strange run that he did. It's another just excellent example of Kate's being really, really good at what he does. Um, he makes Loki the Sorcerer Supreme, and anyone who hasn't read that is missing out because it's just a lot, a lot of fun. So my number seven book is Spider-Gwen, Volume 1 and 2. Jason Latour's scumminess is well-documented. I don't really have to go into that much. But Robbie Rodriguez's art on that book is top-notch. It's some of the best in the industry. I just I can't say enough good things for the look of Spider-Gwen, Volume 1 and 2. It is it's amazing. I'm not the hugest fan of the Gwynnum turn. I'm just kind of over symbiotes in general. But that book, I mean, it just, it looks, it's, it, it, honestly, it looks like if you like, if you wanted to draw like a Sex Pistols album, that's what it would look like. The, the way the lines are just the, uh, even the thickness of the, the, the line weight he chooses when they ink it. It's just the look of that book is so, unique and cool and great. And, um, you know, the story's not bad either, especially uh, one, the first volume. Number two, again, really good. I think it kind of falls off around 22 or 23 when they introduce Gwynnum, but it does come back around by the end. And then number six is going to be Deadly Class. This is a book by Rick Reminder and Wes Craig. I believe it started in 2016, maybe 15, but it is... It's just excellent. It takes place in the 80s, and it is if Hogwarts was for assassins. And it's just as batshit crazy as you would ever want. One of the best things about the book is the way they handle race and caricatures. Everyone who you are introduced to initially in that story is a stereotype. And by issue 15, Everything you thought you knew about these characters that were stereotypes is flipped on their heads, and they become absolutely real people. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing by Rick Remender. I mean, everyone knows that Remender is brilliant, so I really don't have to go on about it. But um, what's kind of glossed over is Wes Craig's art, and his use of negative space is just amazing. I mean, there are full panels where what's going on where how he how he presents the shadows and the way things gives everything movement it's just beautiful to look at so that's going to do it for my bottom five of my top 10 next up we have eddie i've got my bottom five here that uh, i think might surprise some of you uh there's probably two on here that you guys know the rest maybe not so much so my number 10 is lion aurora which came out in came out in uh, let me check my notes here came out in 2015 written by Christos Gage and his wife Ruth Fletcher Gage and illustrated by Jackie Lewis and uh, if you're a Christos Gage fan I know you are Roger I definitely recommend checking it out because you get to see uh, Christos kind of flex his muscles in something other than mainstream superhero stories. And it is yeah, a. I'm already. I'm already adding it to my list as soon as you said Christos Cage. <laughs> well, uh, if you are, if you're a fan of the movie Braveheart, you'll definitely like this. It's based on the true story of a farmer turned freedom fighter in 17th century Italy, and uh, he gets together a group of freedom fighters who go up against the tyrannical 
government that's being run by the church. And like I said, you get to see Christos Gage do something different besides, you know, his mainstream superhero work. And I think he really uh, just hits the mark with this book and it's absolutely fantastic. So I do recommend it. You should pick it up, Roger. And the second book, number nine, uh, The Sheriff of Babylon, which is actually Tom King's first work in comics. And it's very much uh, inspired by his real life work as a uh, ex-CIA officer in Iraq. And um, you get to see where Tom King really started as far as his writing goes. And you get a little insight of who he was and what he himself experienced. And number eight, a timely one, uh, and another one by Tom King. We have the 12-issue miniseries Vision, which if anybody out there who's not read it and you're watching WandaVision, shame on you. You need to go pick it up and read it right away. Uh, similar shame. to the- Yes. I love love that you're angry at the listeners for not having read that. (laughs) Well, it's definitely I one of the best of the last several years. It's if you're watching the show, similar to the show, it's about vision and and trying to have a uh, a normal family life with his uh, android wife and kids, not necessarily Wanda, but although she does appear in in the series. And you see him trying to basically be domestic and what doesn't work and what does work in that retrospect. But it's a fantastic story by Tom King and probably one of his best, if not his best. Uh, Number seven for me is The Immortal Hulk. Uh, Enough said. I don't know what else needs to be said about the series. It is definitely, in my opinion, the best title that Marvel is putting out right now. And I love the fact that it focuses on the Hulk as a horror story instead of a superhero story. So much to the point where at one point the Hulk actually goes to hell. So it is absolutely fantastic. If you love monster stories and horror, you've got to read it. Just disregard the fact that it's Hulk. And number six, I chose a book called The Fifth Beetle which uh, was really big when it came out, but I fear that a lot of people really didn't pick it up and read it. It is the true life story of Brian Epstein, who was the manager of the Beatles. And it really kind of outlines his life and shows what his life was like and how he helped to create the Beatles sound and really help them become such a huge super group. And that is kind of uh, juxtaposed with his personal life where he was very lonely in the closet gay man, which led to unfortunately his early death. And it is a fantastic book about, I think an unsung hero in the music industry. So that's my bottom five and they're books that I recommend to people on a regular basis. And they're books that I think you definitely need to go into your shop and check out if you haven't already. No, I guess it's my turn then. So this is actually a lot harder to do than I thought it was going to be to narrow it down. Um, so Vision actually was on my list and I it was my number 10 and I took it off. So we almost had an overlap, Eddie. We, we <laughs> nearly had an overlap. I'd actually forgotten about um, the Immortal Hulk, though. That's, that was a very good series, too. Oh, for um, shame. So I know I totally spaced it. Although, honestly, I don't know that I would have put it on my list anyways. It was really good, but I don't know what it hit my top 10. 
so my number 10 is all new Wolverine. This was um, X-23 taking over the Wolverine mantle. I'm a giant X-23 nerd, so I'm a little biased, but introducing the Gabby character and the interactions between Laura and Gabby and the, and it's the way it shows Laura's the way she took her trauma from, from her childhood and has turned that into her motivation to do good and, and really develop that character in a way. And Tom Taylor, I think did a really good job with that one. Um, my number nine is birthright. This is a skybound book. It's i uh, I'm not a big fantasy guy. It's one of the few fantasy titles that I really like. Um, it's a kid disappears while playing catch with his dad. And a year later, they find a grown man who claims to be that kid walking through that same forest that he disappeared at. And there's been a year of everyone, you know, the hound media hounding and thinking the dad killed the kid. And um, this dad happened to live with this reality. And then it kind of, you know, is it the kid or is it not? And then it kind of goes from there and goes all kinds of crazy. Um, but it's a very good series. Um, supposedly it's been optioned. Hopefully that actually happens because it would make a very cool show. Uh, number eight is Gwenpool. Um, I thought Gwenpool was absolutely ridiculous when I heard they were going to make it and I was adamantly opposed to it. And then I read it and I instantly fell in love with it. Um, it's the right, perfect kind of breaking the fourth wall. She is the perfect character and I'm in love with the whole series. And if you've never given a chance, you really need to. Uh, Seven is an action labs comic book. Uh, it's called voracious. Um, this book is effectively about a trained chef who inherits a property in Southern Utah that he finds a time machine in, which makes him go back to, time and fights off a dinosaur and kills it and decides to open a restaurant serving dinosaur meat. Cause he finds out dinosaurs are delicious. Um, and it goes into all kinds of crazy time travel stuff and interdimensional stuff. And I don't want to give anything away cause it's one of the most twist and turny books and it takes you by surprise constantly. Um, and the creators of that book actually have a new book coming out from scout comics called, um, by the horns pretty soon, which I am very looking forward to as well. And then my number six is nail biter. This was an image comic book. It was a, image horror book. Um, uh, it's about a small town in Oregon that has produced, um, 13 of the most prolific serial killers in the world. And this is a town of like 30,000 people and no one knows why. So there's investigators and police are going in to try and find why it's got a little hint of silence of the lambs, kind of the people working with the serial killer to try and solve the serial killer. A little bit of that with a little bit of, um, uh, you know, what is that? What was that Kevin Bacon serial killer movie that was on Fox for a while? Um, I remember the name of it, but it, it kind of, it's a Josh Williamson book before he became the big, this is kind of the book that propelled him into DC. Um, and for good reason, it's a really good book. Um, it's, it, it's really fun. It was a 30, 30 issues and they just started a new series around it, uh, recently. So those are my, not my bottom five. Cause I won't disparage them as you have, but that is my six through 10. Good choices. And I think the show you were thinking about is The Following. The Following, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it has a little hint of that. It's not quite as cheesy as that one, but uh, it has a little hint of what made that that show cool. Uh, yeah, I wish I had, I haven't heard of that. So I will want to, as an Oregonian, I want to check that out. Um, oh, yeah. If you haven't read that one, and um, Harrow County is another one I believe that takes place in Oregon. That's a great little horror book. Okay. Good to know. I'll okay. Pay my list. So I think from here on out, we're going to kind of round robin this and go one at a time to build a little suspense until we get to the number one book on our top 10 books of 2010s. I am on uh, the edge of my seat. Yeah. <laughs> so my number five is Batman TMNT2. And 
I picked this book for one reason and one reason only. And it's a great book. The story's fine. Um, it's James Tenyon. He wrote it excellently. You know, it's top. Everything's great about it. But the reason I picked it is because of the relationship between Raphael and Damien in that story. And it is just wonderful because they go, as you would expect, from immediately hating each other to by the by the end, I think it's a five-issue miniseries. It might be six. I think it's five. But I think by the end of three or four, it is clear that Raphael and Damien are BFFs forever. And the fact that they didn't spin out their own miniseries out of that is a tragedy. And so I'm going to keep bringing it up until I will this thing into reality because Raphael and Damien's relationship in that book is just, it's their personalities are just so perfect for each other to be partnered up. Um, so yeah, that's my number five. Well, my number five is a really serious indie book by the name of, Collector's Annual Number Four: True Collector's Romance. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Why do I love it so much? Because it is a funny comic strip about comic book collecting and marriage, and where the two collide. And I also love it because I am the writer and artist, and it's my book, so I can All do right, this. But for real, though, for real though, that was not just a plug for plug's sake, because it was really that good. <laughs> Thank you. I'll back you up on it. Um, I got to say, of the five annuals that I've done, this one I do like the most because it is the size of a graphic novel, but also the original story in the beginning. I, I still read it every once in a while and flip through it, and I chuckle. I mean, I wrote the thing, I drew the thing, and I've seen it a million times over, but when I look at it, I still laugh. All right, so I guess my number five, and um, I think this one's going to, I don't know, this one might ruffle some feathers, but I don't care because I absolutely loved it. It's the Secret Empire story arc, the Hydra Cap. Um, I think Hydra Cap is one of my favorite Marvel villains. I think that everything leading up to that, the biggest flaw with this is the flaw of most Marvel event books, which is if you don't read the right portions outside of it, you don't get the full scope and don't get the full story, and then it's not nearly as good. Um, it's why if you go back and read Civil War, it's just Civil War. It's not really as good as the hype makes it out to be for a lot of the same reasons. But Secret Empire, if you read... You know, through Pleasant Hill, through Silent, or through Secret War, or uh, Civil War Two, and all of the um, Captain America, Steve Rogers run, and then into the Secret Empire, and that whole event as it was absolutely fantastic. Just twist and turn, and the perfect villain. And man, Steve Rogers makes a chilling villain. And I've never really, man, I like Captain America, but he's not my guy as a hero. Um, but man, he's my guy as a villain. So that would be my number five. You know what I will say about that too, is that a lot of people who are huge Captain America fans who were all up in arms and hated it were saying, well, why do you got to make Captain America the villain? Why do you got to make him the Hydra agent, Nazi Hydra agent? You know, he's Captain America. Yeah, that's why you do it. The one who is the complete opposite of the villain is the one you want to be the villain because it's just so out of, out of the norm and out of type. And it makes well, it and they did such a good job. They did such a good job keeping his keeping his Steve Rogersness. Like he was a villain, but he was and he was a Hydra agent, and he was very much like into all the Hydra, you know, ethnic cleansing basically stuff. But he would did it. He was he put his own humane spin on it, and it could show you how you could still be this evil villain, but still believe that you're the good guy. And he was, you know, vilified by a lot of the, like, Madam Hydra and a lot of the heads of Hydra before being too soft because he was doing these things to try and, you know, like, putting the X-Men into their own, 
zone where he allowed them to live as long as they were secluded, you know, the equal but lesser type thing. And, and it really, it, it really well navigated. It, it really showed how much Nick Spencer is a study, a student of history and politics um, when he wrote that, because it really came through in the writing, how much it mirrored real life history and real life politics. Yeah. And it also really highlights that story idea of every villain thinks that they are the hero of their own story. Yeah. And him more than others. You could absolutely see while reading that, how Steve believed that what he was doing was justified for the greater good in the the final end. My number four is also Gwynpool. Because it's so good. It is. It's, it's excellent. I think that Gwynpool started off kind of rough and I think that's why it didn't catch on. I think that's unfortunate because after issue 15, when they did a soft reboot, that is, if it it wasn't so short, I would have it up higher. Honestly, it's so good. The 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 final final arc of that was one of the best. The Doctor Doom issue in particular is some of the best writing of the last 50 years, let alone the last 10 and you know what? Gwynpool Strikes Back also deserves to be tagged on there because that was a really good read as well. He, the last 10 books, I believe it was, or eight books, nine books of her her original series, I think it's the unbelievable Gwynpool. Just wonderful. It's Everyone should read it. So, yeah, that's my number four. Yeah, I agree. It was fantastic. Well, my number four is a book that a lot of people probably don't know about, but they really should because it's just that good. It was a book called Tumor, came out in 2010 by Archaea Press, written by Joshua Fialkov. And this book is about an older private detective who is suffering from a fatal brain tumor. And he takes one last job to find uh, the daughter of a mob boss. And the brain tumor interestingly enough, is making him experience reality in a weird way. It's causing him pain and seizures, but it's also causing him to see, to mix up his present day uh, reality along with his past. And he doesn't know which is what's real and what isn't. And so it forces him to confront all of his mistakes and his demons from his past in order to complete this one last job. And it is just a fantastic story that I think a lot of people slept on or didn't know about. And I highly recommend you go. I believe it's still in print. I highly recommend you go pick it up. All right. So my number four is the IDW run of TMNT, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles run. I'm a Ninja Turtles nerd, have been forever. And I think it's the best storytelling in the history of the Ninja Turtles. Um, They've got this really great combo Kevin Eastman is back to overview kind of the overarching story with this. Um, and they have a great writing team um, and, and art team that's on it. Tom Waltz has been writing the series and having him actually doing, you know, having him with Kevin's guidance has been such an incredible team uh, working together. And they've, you know, they, they really started out doing what I really think TMNT needs to do in the cinematic universe, which is building itself as its own universe aside from what we've seen um, because Shredder doesn't come into this for like three years, the first three years of publishing this um, comic. It's about, they bring the very first villain as a brand new villain to the universe. And they bring all these different elements of, you know, the, the mutanimals and, and the, the other animals that were mutated by the mutagen that affected the turtles. And it has this really strong undertones in the mutanimals of 
corporate espionage and, and what the corporations do that they get away with. And they become kind of these freedom fighters with, you know, kind of anti-hero also, you know, kind of that anti-hero fighting against the fighting with the good guys sometimes. And it goes into the, the nightfall, I believe it was called nightfall story arc, which was uh, where shredder effectively turns Leonardo into his control. And it makes one of the coolest, one of the coolest villains, really awesome character design, super fun story arc to follow. And it's just, it's taken the perfect right amounts of twists and turns at the right areas. And it's been really fantastic with foreshadowing, which I'm always really appreciative of when they do a lot of great foreshadowing and, and, and that kind of stuff. So um, I've been really impressed with it as a, as a longtime TMNT nerd. I get a lot of people that are not TMNT nerds and that haven't read a lot of TMNT or, or been a big into the TMNT universe into it that really enjoy it as well. Uh, I think it has really good broad appeal. And I think a lot of people aren't picking it up just because they TMNT isn't their thing. And I would definitely say if TMNT is not your thing, that's fine. Still pick it up because it's very good. All right. I've been meaning to get into that series and I just always just kind of skip it because it's, you know, you see turtles and it's, I know what turtles are. You know, I've been a turtles fan since I was six years old, seven years old, you know, and I, 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 I already have, you know, my pool's already so full, but maybe you, you sold me, Roger. I'm going to make an effort to uh, get caught up and start reading that. It's it's everything. I'm telling you, if they made the Turtles movies where they let Tom Waltz and Kevin Eastman guide the Turtles movies and play the Kevin Feige role, it would turn into a successful multi-movie franchise in an entire universe. It's that good. It would, it would catch fire. It's just so good. All right. So my number three is a book that's, Pretty new. It's from the end of 2019, start of 2020, and it's it was on a lot of book of the year lists. I feel like this book didn't get the attention it deserved, even though it's on every single book of the year list still, because it's that good. Um, it's Superman Smashes the Clan by Gene Luen Yang and the art team Guri Hiru. For those that didn't read it, it is the story of how Superman discovers that it's okay to use his other powers. It takes place in the 50s. And and at this point, Superman didn't fly, didn't have laser vision. He didn't use any of his powers. And the reason for this in the story is because he was worried it would make people view him as an outsider. It would make people afraid of him if they saw the true extent of his capabilities. And so he holds back from being who he is and it has very negative side effects. And at the same time, it tells a story of a uh, Asian family who is moving to suburbs of Metropolis from, uh, from Metropolis is Chinatown. In this process, some of the neighbors are unhappy and they join a chapter of what they call it the Clan of the Fiery Cross, which is an obvious allusion to the Ku Klux Klan. And they it creates this conflict that Superman and Lois Lane and Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen all get involved in. But what's really fascinating about the story is that it was originally a 1940s radio play. This was when Superman was the number one show in the country. I mean, this was basically, I don't know what the number one show is right now. If Superman was friends in the 90s, that's what the show was. And they had chose to approach the subject. And so what the writer Gene Luen Yang did is he went and he updated the story and made it work as a graphic story. 
And um, the art by Guru Hiru is just awesome. These guys are, I can't say enough good things about these guys. Uh, definitely people, definitely artists to look out for. Go check it out and see how Superman smashes the plane. That was a good choice, Joe. What's interesting about that book, too, is that it comes off as, and I think it was meant really to be kind of written and drawn as an all-ages book. Yet uh, yeah, it, absolutely. Yet it tackles very kind of you know deep themes in it as well. It certainly doesn't talk down to a younger reading, reading audience at all. And even though it's kind of more kind of in the format of an all-ages book and story, it's one that adults can read and appreciate and enjoy just as much. Absolutely. And I, I will actually, for Christmas, for a Christmas present, I bought a full set for my friend's three-year-old son. So it is literally all ages. Yeah. I, he can't read yet, but I thought that his dad could read it to him and it'd be a good spot for him to jump into comics. I agree. And actually, this is interesting. Not only did I give copies to my buddy's three-year-old son for Christmas, I gave my copies to my 67-year-old father. <laughs> and he read it and loved it. So it, it is the definition of all ages. Good on you. Good on you. So my number three is my current favorite Ed Brubaker story. His newest book that he put out, I think it was last year, Pulp, is actually a very close second. But this one, my number three, is my favorite. And it's called Bad Weekend. And this was actually a short, I think just two-issue story in his ongoing monthly criminal uh, title. But this, they put it out in a nice hardcover. They expanded it. And it's a fantastic story about an old, curmudgeon bitter comic book creator who is going to San Diego Comic-Con to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award. And he is just the epitome of the kind of old-time comic book creator, just hard drinking, hard smoking, and he just cannot keep himself from getting in trouble. And his ex-art uh, ex assistant is the one that has to kind of corral him and take him down to San Diego and watch over him. But in typical Ed Brubaker fashion, everything just goes completely haywire. And the scene where he actually accepts the, the award at the award ceremony is just utterly amazing and fantastic. And if you work in the industry or just know people in the industry or just are interested in the comic book industry, you'll see a lot in there, a lot of nods to the industry itself. And it's just a fantastic book and definitely Ed Brubaker's best. So that's my number three. Eddie, I think I'm adding like your whole list right to tonight. This is how this is going for me. <laughs> so a lot of that are on my list aren't necessarily ongoing titles. A lot of them are kind of one and done um, stories or even original graphic novels. So they're great things literally when you're in the shop that if you find someone who's not really into superhero stuff, you can hand them one of these books and tell them, you just got to buy just this one book. It's a one and done story. And if you like this, come back. We can recommend a whole bunch of other stories you're going to love. Yeah, those are great. And they're really underappreciated. I think that um, the OGN and, and the smaller format um, stories, they don't get quite the talk and stuff as the ongoings. But I think it's a really underappreciated part of the art form. So, OK, so my turn. Uh, my number three is a book by it's a Top Cow book, I believe, uh, by Matt Hawkins. Uh, it's a book called Postal. It's a book where the lead character is a autistic teenage boy 
in an action who's a, who works as a postman and it works. I mean, the whole concept of this book is there's a, a, a town that doesn't exist where the FBI has agreed that people that cause trouble, they put there. And as long as they don't cause any more trouble, they can live in this town, but they aren't allowed to leave. And this kid that was born in that town, you know, raised there, he's allowed to leave. So he kind of runs for supplies and does all those kind of things. And, and that's kind of who the story is based around. And it's just kind of the, the, the way things go in this town of, of criminals and of hardened, hardened people that are, you know, disappeared by the FBI to keep them kind of under wraps. Matt Hawkins is a brilliant writer. Um, he's a really smart person. Uh, he has a lot of, you know, when you talk to the guy, he definitely has a lot of interest and a lot of knowledge and experience in things of political intrigue and things of, um, you know, espionage. I guess his dad worked in, in, in intelligence at one point and he had a lot of stories from that that he adapts into his writing. Um, and, and it shows, it shows it comes from a place of being educated on these subjects. Um, but it doesn't miss the human element of these characters. And it's actually part of a larger world with his other um, books, Think Tank and The Tithe, um, which I also recommend, especially The Tithe. I really enjoyed um, Think Tank is, I think is more popular when I didn't like it as much. It was still, I mean, still a good book, but, um, but you certainly don't have to read all of those in order to uh, read Postal. Um, so I would really recommend if you're looking for something different with a different feel and a very different vibe, that's one that I would, you know, I, I would really highly recommend people to go check out. My number two is just Batman. The Batman run from the last decade is the best Batman run there has ever been in that book. It starts off in 2011 with Volume 2, The New 52, and you have Snyder and Capullo, and they give you some of the best Batman stories ever written. Then continues over to Tom King, and it gets better somehow. Bold statement. A lot of people are going to disagree with me, and I understand that. I'm okay with making it, though. The Gotham Girl and and uh, Prison of Bane arcs are just phenomenal. And then it goes rolls into the War of Jokes and Riddles, which was also just awesome. The Tom King run just continues on through the wedding. And he lost a lot of people because a lot of people got angry. But they didn't look at the wedding issue in the context the wedding of Cat Batman and Catwoman, if you don't know. Uh, they didn't look at that wedding in the context of what Tom King was doing in the overall larger scope of things. If you notice, as that run goes through, Batman begins to lose battles in bigger and bigger ways. I mean, he wins. He wins the arc. But it, what, what each win costs him is a piece of himself. And... He slowly strips away everything that makes Batman Batman. And by the time you get to the wedding, you know, that's kind of like the last thing that's kind of tethering him to Bruce Wayne is that he's supposed to marry Selina. And when she doesn't show, it just almost destroys him. And then that's followed up by one of the best Batman stories of all time, which is The Trial of Mr. Freeze. Bruce Wayne is a juror on this trial and everyone knows that Mr. Freeze is guilty and Bruce Wayne refuses to vote to convict. And the reason that he got himself put on this trial so he could get him declared, so he could get him declared innocent is he almost killed him as Batman. If you if you follow Batman for Batman to cross the line of like almost murdering somebody, it's a big indication of his psyche. It does kind of go. I mean, I like the run between, the wedding in City of Bane, 
I actually think like the crescendo of the series is when Nightwing is shot in the head by um, KG Beast. I understand that it does get very abstract. They bring in Thomas Wayne and there's issue. There's a run with Professor Pig where it's very unclear of what's reality and what's dreams. And it makes the rest of the run very surreal all the way up to City of Bane. And I do understand that people were unhappy that he that Tom King killed Alfred and Wally West in the same year. But overall, that run is so dynamic. It's so smart. It's so well done. And it's so big. It's a hundred. It's supposed to be a hundred issues. I'm. I'll always. I'm. I know that supposedly we're getting the missing issues in Batman Catwoman, and I'm looking forward to reading them. By the way, number one was absolutely brilliant of Batman Catwoman. The New Fifty Two run. Everyone knows how good that is. And then Tom King's run for me is even better. So Batman is my number two book of the decade. And regarding that wedding issue. I can totally appreciate what he was doing from an artistic standpoint and an emotional standpoint. I'm only angry with it because as a retailer, if the wedding would have been real, I could have ordered a caseload of copies of that book and I could have just sold it as an evergreen product for years. <laughs> so that's that the being, only that reason. That being said, I, I like when creators don't necessarily write for sales, they write for the audience. You know what I mean? Oh, agreed. Agreed. I'm saying from an artistic standpoint, you know, he did it the right way. It uh, had to happen. You, you can't. I mean, he really flirted with the idea that you could have. Could you have Bruce Wayne be happy and be Batman? And he no. really like gave it a shot. And then he just, he, you know, he Bruce Wayne, the character, believed this for the first time in his history that he could be happy. And he to make the character, you know, be Batman, he just, he can't, he can't be a happy person. And so, and King, I think he, he proved that in this run. And it's just, it's essential to everything that makes Batman Batman for him not to have gone through with that way. Uh, yeah, totally agree. So my number two is a series from Dark Horse called Resident Alien. And this is a, it's an ongoing title, but it's published in arcs. Like they did a story arc, they took a break, did another story arc, took a break, so on and so on. And this is the story of an alien who crashes to earth. His ship is completely destroyed and unrepairable. And he realizes I just have to spend the rest of my life here on this planet on earth. So he has this, he looks like an alien. His skin is purple. He's got the big black eyes and the pointy ears. There's no mistaking him for human. But he has this mental ability to be able to make you think that he looks like a normal human, kind of a mind control thing. And it kind of slips a little bit with certain people. And some people kind of almost can see who he really is. So in order to have, he takes on a persona in order to live out the rest of his life on earth. And he takes on the persona of an older retired doctor who lives in a cabin on the outskirts of this small town. But when the uh, doctor of that small town is murdered, not only does he have to solve that case, but he also has also has to become the new doctor for that small town. And it kind of takes on the feeling of the show Murder, She Wrote, where he's kind of trying to solve 
different kind of medical cases in the town and also trying to understand how humans are, what they think, how they act, and trying to basically take on that persona. So it's a fantastic book that has become a TV show on sci-fi. And I have said since the very first issue came out, this needs to be a TV show. And in my shop, every time people from studios would come in asking about what's the hot thing when they would be looking for things to option, I would always give them a copy of that. Always. So, so you're the reason we have it. Yes. All, and I, all, you're all the credit. And I want my big fat check. Right? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that's you my at number. Least need to get, you at least need to get a free autograph from Alan Tudyk next time. A walk-on roll. I need a walk-on roll. How about that? That's right. Tell them. Tell them <laughs> next time those studio guys are in. Be like, yo. Where's my money? Yeah, yeah. Come on. Like, like what am I getting for this? This is exactly. not a one-sided relationship here. Exactly. I give, I get. That's how this works. <laughs> and that's my number two, and I definitely recommend you check it out. So my number two is my only DC book on the entire list. It is Dark Knight, The True Batman Story by Paul Dini. Um, I believe damn it. it. A- damn it, damn it, damn it. I forgot <laughs> that book. Yes, that should have so been in my good. top ten. It is an amazing true life story. Go ahead, Roger. Set it up. Yeah, it, so it's it's the story about uh, – it's a true story about Paul Dini and um, something that happened to him, from, I believe, in the early 90s when he was mugged and nearly killed and ended up in the hospital for a long time. And Paul Dini was an illustrator who worked um, pretty heavily on the Batman animated um, series uh, that was really big at that time. And this book I'm tells sorry, his – Paul Dini design. I mean, Paul Dini is the art of the animated series. Yeah, no, I, that's, yeah, yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. You're <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. I, 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 had to do it. I know he, you know, you're not wrong. I definitely, that, that was underselling him for sure. He's definitely um, one of the top guys alongside Bruce Tim and, and Glenn Murakami for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's one of the most influential Batman artists of all time. Let's, let's say that. Um, and so, and uh, so anyways, it, it talks about a little bit about him, him you know, finding success and in, in, in going into that role and then how that experience of being mugged and, and almost killed like that really broke him on the creative creativity and the creative side of drawing superheroes because he, there was no superhero for him. There was no hero. And he felt like it kind of toxified his, his outlook on life and being able to write hero books when he no longer believed in heroes and some of the, the internal turmoil that that did to him as well as obviously the physical turmoil. Um, and I don't want to give a whole lot away, but, you know, there are certain comics are a great medium and there's comics for every mood and every type of creativity. But there is rarely every now and then a comic that you you read. And when you sit and set it down, you just have to digest it and you just have to sit there for a minute. Let it soak in what you just read, how it made you feel, what it had to say. And, you know, this book was right there with books like Mouse, um, where that was the case where you put it down and you just sit there and have to absorb what you just and took and what it had to say and how much impact it had. Absolutely phenomenal. And it's one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah, I definitely will give that, put that on my list as an honorable mention only because I forgot about it. Otherwise it would have been very high up on it. It's a fantastic yeah, it's, book. Anyone who comes into good. the shop who loves Batman, I always try to steer them towards that book. I've never read it. You have to oh, read it, Joe. You have it is to read absolute, it. It's yes. so good. It yeah, is. I will look at. I will because I've read about 
the incident, um, I have a coffee table book that's the art of Harley Quinn. And so I've definitely read about him being mugged before and the effect it had on his approach, but I didn't know that book existed. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to grab one next time I go to my LCS. It's, it's interesting to read and to, it's almost scary too, where you kind of get into his head of what he's going on. And uh, I, it's been a while since I read it. So you can kind of maybe correct me a bit, Roger, but you're really seeing a lot of the Batman villain characters kind of conversing with him in his head. And it it's very scary to see him kind of just really mentally slipping because of this incident. Yeah, he really uses all the different Batman characters to show what his internal turmoil and they, they all kind of encompass a different part of his recovery and the turmoil he goes through. And it's just it's genius. I mean, yeah, it's, I, it's, I, it's a single it's a single hardcover. It's a it's a relatively quick read to get the whole story. But, man, it's it's one of the best I've read. I just remember the Joker taunting him in his head. All right. My number one is March by John Lewis. And I think, yeah, it really has to be, in my opinion, has to be everyone's number one for the last 10 years. It's just, it, it will break your heart when you read it. And it just captures what John Lewis went through during the fifties and sixties during the civil rights movements and his, pledge to nonviolence and how much violence was met to that. And it really just captures both him, the time period and the struggle so well, and just so emotionally that I think it is just required reading, not only of any comic fan, but of any history fan of anyone with a pulse, I think. So that is my number one, and I think that really just deserves to be anyone's number one. Well, now we're even because uh, you forgot, or you forgot the one that I put on my list, and I forgot the one that you put on your list. But that was a great, that was a great call. <laughs> okay, actually, it's another one I haven't read yet. Oh God! What is Joe. wrong with you, man? Get, get yes. out of the DC rabbit hole, dude. Come and read yeah. real books. Batman, Batman, <laughs> Batman. <laughs> I um. No, I mean, I've been, it's, you guys are so passionate about it. It's been on my to-do list for a long time. It's just um, it's just another one that I just haven't picked up yet, and I just need to do it. So what I'll one do of my, is – One of my most prized moments and prized possessions was meeting John Lewis at San Diego Comic-Con to have that book signed. And I have oh, the slipcover yeah. hardcase edition signed by John Lewis. Does the book tell the history behind how he decided to do this project? Or do you know the history behind it? Uh, behind how he tried, decided to do the actual comic? Yeah. The book I believe doesn't... The, yeah, I, the, I, I believe the history is he... I think I think he was approached by IDW, wasn't he? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's not really like a huge story that needs to be told behind that. It The book itself just starts with him uh, as a young man in the 50s and then literally ends with him at Obama's inauguration. So... Uh, it's not actually in the book as far as how it came about, but I think yet, yeah, like Roger said, he was just approached by IDW with um, them wanting to tell his story and basically giving him the opportunity to do so. He didn't write and script the book. They basically the team sat down with him while he yes. told his story, and then the team scripted and wrote the book. So it was still written by professional 
comic artists and comic writers that wrote the book. Although John Lewis is credited as a writer because it was his story that he told, um, it was actually scripted by uh, Andrew Aiden and illustrated by Nate Powell. Okay. I just assume there might be like a forward or something that said, you know, I was approached to tell the story, but, you know, I was just curious if that was in there because I'm always fascinated by stuff like that, like how projects come, come about. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Joe, what I'll do is I'll, uh, it's a, a three book trilogy. Uh, if you want to read it, I can, if I think I should have it in stock, I'll, I can get them to you and I will even draw Batman into it. So I know you'll definitely read it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Batman, Batman marching with them in Selma. <laughs> he would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. If, and if he would have been there, nobody would have gotten their heads cracked open. That's well, somebody would have, just the right people. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So so Roger and I have the same number one. And if you've been paying attention to comics at all, I'm sure you can guess. It's the book of the decade. It's Saga, written by Brian K. Vaughn and drawn by Fiona Staples. What can I say about that book that hasn't already been said? Fiona is an absolute genius. The fact that she does all the art for that book herself, all the lettering, all the writing, or not all the writing, all the lettering, all the line work, all the colors. Her color work is so underrated too. It's, it's just, it's, it's unfathomable that she can consistently put out something of such incredible quality. And, and Vaughn too. I mean, Brian K. Vaughn, yeah. we talk about consistent quality. I mean, everything that man touches is different levels of genius. Like there definitely are ones that are better than others, but I mean, paper girls very easily could have been on this list. Why the last man could have been on this list. Like there's a lot of things he's done that could easily be on this oh, list. Absolutely. As well. Absolutely. And with the exception of under the dome, which, you know, the first season was actually good, <laughs> but after that it fell apart hard. Um, yeah, no, I can't think of anything that in the comics, I can't think of anything that Brian K. Vaughn has done that I would criticize. I know that I've read. Even his easy work is good. (laughs) And anyways, but yeah, no. uh, The thing that just continually blows my mind about Saga, other than Fiona Staples' genius, is how well Brian K. Vaughn works. I don't want to say politics, because it's not politics, but current events. He works the human experience. The entirety of the human experience is what it is. It's everything. Yeah. No, and yeah, it's, it's everything. Like, it's the entire human experience in one story. I, I always tell people the thing that I like the most about it is it has absolutely no genre that you can put it into, and I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah, no, I mean, well, I mean, it's definitely science fiction, but <laughs> after yeah, but that, it's it's everything. It's horror. Yeah. It's it's sci-fi. It's romance. It's action. Yeah, it's comedy. It's it's every genre all at once. Absolutely, and and just because that, it's a reflection of life. And every single character is a flushed out character. I mean, even characters that you meet along the way that aren't instantly killed off become that you would expect to just be ancillary characters in a normal story become flushed out three-dimensional characters. And it's just genuinely amazing. One thing about Saga that just consistently shocks me is people that I know skew right will read it and they still like it despite it's super sex positive themes. It's super uh, LGBTQ um, progressive ideas. I mean, 
there's just I, it's it's amazing to me. I, I mean, maybe they're just not seeing it, but I don't know how. No, I, so I, I think it's because it's such an earnest. Um, again, I come back to it's, it's just an earnest reflection of the human experience. It takes something so grounded and puts it in such a fantastical universe. And really at the core of it, it's, it's, it's humanity is at the core of it. And humanity is something that can resonate with somebody from every walk of life. And, and that's why I think that it goes through to all of them. Um, And you talk about these minor characters, you know, issue number 42 of saga to me, and I'm not someone who worries about issue numbers. I'm not someone who, ever rereads an issue. I remember when I read that issue, I read it four times in a row. Um, it is the best single issue of a comic book I've ever read bar none. And a hundred percent of the reason why was due to characters that had nothing to do with the main characters in the story. Um, it was, it was these side characters in, in what happened the way, you know, what happened with them. And, and, and I don't know if you remember that issue um, specifically. It's the one that ends with the four black pages and, uh, you know, just what it said in, in, in the undertones of it. And and I, I remember just being absolutely floored um, when I finished that issue. And it's so often. I mean, it's it seems like every third or fourth issue you read that book and you're 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 yelling Brian K. Vaughn's name because he gave you the feels, you know, every like every every few issues. Um, and so, yeah, uh, yeah so it's just so my, consistent. My favorite issue of Saga, I've. I'm going to, I'm, it's so hard to say a favorite issue, like favorite arc would be easier, but I'm going to say I, it's a few, it's right around that issue too. It's the, I'm trying, I can't think of what their names are off the top of my head, but the, uh, the journalists, the one yeah, yeah. where yeah, yeah, yeah. Out their whole relationship, it's just, it's, it's very good. Oh God. And then just like the, um, the way that he like portrays how isolated they feel because they have to live uh, in the closet because of their society's views on how they are or who they are. And just like um, how despondent that is for one of the characters and just how like it's, it's just, yeah, no. And, and that's the thing is, even if I I'm saying that's my favorite issue, like I can probably come up with like, 10 issues that rival that easily. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's one, there's one quote from saga. Um, and again, so many good ones, but there's one that I always come back to. Um, and it says, if a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, then a family is more like a rope. We're lots of fragile little strands and we survive because by becoming hopelessly intertwined with each other. And I've always thought that that was just absolutely poetic. Um, and no, that, I yeah. think if you take anybody who's a literary, you know, if you tell anybody that's a, that's a book snob that quote and then tell them that it's from a comic book, you know what I mean? You know, that's that's all the evidence you need that comic books are serious art forms and, and need to be respected. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that's actually if someone challenges comic books like as art, whether or not they are art, I, that is the book that I that is my first go to. Um, I would also say that the uh, just one page of Saga, it gets me every time it literally i don't think i've ever cried reading a comic book and i still didn't cry but i definitely shed a tear reading the scene with lion cat and uh ah, what's the little girl's name oh yeah yep no i know exactly what um what scene you're talking about page with lion cat where she's she's telling him she was a sex slave a child sex slave that was rescued from uh rescued 
uh, by the will, she's telling Lion Cat all that she's dirty inside because of what she had done with these men or what these men had done to her. And Lion Cat says lying. And <laughs> it's just like one word, but it's just so such a poignant moment. And it's just and for those, those that don't know, it's not Lion Cat is a character who can tell when people are with who knows when people are not telling the truth about something. And, yeah, so. and, but he, Lion Cat only says lying, but he also has a, per, a distinct personality and he's not, oh, a, uh, he's not a huggy feels character. He will definitely no, he's not at all. tear your throat out very quickly. So for him to um, make this connection with this, with this damaged girl. Well, so it's, it's, he makes this connection with a girl to let her know she's not damaged. I think yeah, that's yeah, yeah, really exactly. the, yeah, exactly. Or no, not that she's not damaged, but that she's not dirty. She's not garbage. She's not trash. She still has value as a as a being. I, I think that that's yeah. No, that's one of the best. Just panel, like panel, panel, panel. Like just one of the best pages in the history of comic books. Period. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, and I think you could pull three or four separate pages out of that book and call it that. And I don't think that you could really argue too much with that. No, absolutely. So I am going to add one to mine, though, since you had the same one. Um, and I'm going to give a shout out to my buddy Doug's book, uh, Doug Wagner, who we had on here before, Plastic. Um, Good book. If you want the most bizarre and you'll never read anything like it, and it's the it's something you will never forget, and it's not <laughs> going to be like any experience you've ever had in any media book that you've ever read, go read Plastic. It's, it's just such a unique experience um you know it's definitely an inappropriate horror book it's definitely something not for the you know for people with a certain um you know tolerance i suppose but um man if you just want to be abs i don't even want to go into what it's about because if anybody is listening to this that considers it it will be better if you don't know going in (laughs) just i mean if you read it and you don't like it i will buy it off of you that's how that's how much i want people to read this book so um I absolutely, it's one of my favorite books ever. Yeah, yeah. it's a, that's a good choice. Definitely. Also, um, if we're going to do a Doug book, Ride, Ride is very good. Uh, definitely worth checking that out as well from Image. And uh, we'll also, let's, another honorable mention that we somehow left off of our 30 books was uh, uh, Brian Stelfreeze's Black Panther run from uh, 2016, which is just absolutely excellent. 100% yeah, must read material. I mean, like I said, it was a lot harder to, to do this than I thought because there's just so much. I, I, I know that it doesn't, it, it runs contradictory to what you hear online and all the Facebook groups, but people are always talking about what's the best je- decade for comic book. And I think it's right now. I really do. I think vol- quality of, of content wise, the best books that are being produced right now that have ever been produced. I think people just are too focused on nostalgia and only the big two to understand and to see it. Well, it's not just that. I mean, honestly, and we talked about it with uh, we talked about it with all with I think every guest we've had on who's creative in the industry is that comics are at their peak right now as a storytelling like medium. If you if you go back and like right now, I'm reading Chris Claremont X Men just because it's so good, but like it's still like it still has those same issues that came from books right before it where there's a lot of like exposition that's totally needless that you could just do in panel that they do in words 
and it makes reading comics almost like it, it almost treats the uh, it treats you like you're almost stupid because it's well, like because it was it, it was being okay. written specifically designed so that it could be accessible by kids. Well, yeah, I understand that, but the same, but exactly, and that's why I think. I think that's a big factor in why what we're seeing, because we're getting that same complex storytelling, but then they're not treating the readers with kid gloves anymore. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you, you're, you're getting it. It's really much more artistic. And, and, and you know, the fusion, you, you can tell these creators that were now raised by the generation of Alan Moore and Frank Miller and uh, Chris Claremont and the guys who started to really understand how to fuse the the visual with the words to create a whole art form that went together as one piece rather than the writing and the art as two separate units that tells the same story, um, if that makes any sense. And I think you're seeing a lot more of that now um, that I think really adds to it as well. I just think I just think in the freedom and the proliferation of a lot of these other companies that are producing comics that are giving the creators the freedom to create what they want to do. Um, that you have the proliferation of that happening right now, I think really drives home the the, the quality of the content as well. Eddie, what do you think? Uh, I was actually going to bring this up since you were talking about Saga so wonderfully, but you guys are going on on and on and on and on and on. (laughs) Um, uh, And I know this because I was listening to my wife record her podcast earlier today, and she brought this up uh, on her podcast. But uh, Saga confirmed is returning after its yes. long hiatus yes. Uh, yes. Brian K. Brian Vaughn uh, confirmed it a couple days ago that it is returning and um, if I heard my wife correctly he said that basically they are only about halfway through the story and they've got a lot of issues left to do yeah no this was like the halfway point um, he's, he's been saying that for years that it's a hundred issues um, and yeah, no, they, I mean, so basically I believe that they had intended for the book to maybe come back at the, like in the third, fourth quarter of 2020 before COVID. And well, I know if you I remember, know they, they said it was going to be a year hiatus and that stretched yeah. off into what? Three two and years? And a half years. Yeah. Well, it was supposed to be, it's been three, it, it's been two and a half. It'll be three by the time it comes back. Cause I don't believe it'll be back by summer. Um, but it ended in July, I believe. But yeah, no. So I, I, I think what from what I read um, on his Instagram, Fiona's got the scripts for the first half of the books and has been doing the art, and um, that he is still working on the second half of the arc. But that they're, you know, they're they're in the creative process, so it's coming. So that ought to make you happy. Oh, very, very. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. Now they just need to bring back Gwynpool, and Roger and I will be two very happy people. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, no, but um, like as far I was curious about your take, Eddie, as far as like like talking about like you know eighties like Miller and Claremont and all that good stuff, and seeing mm-hmm. the evolution of comics to today. How because you more so than me and Roger were like. Because if that's comics renaissance, you were right in the middle of it. You know, you were a teenager. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up, my first exposure as a young kid was reading 
uh, the classic Marvel reprints. When I was in school, in grade school, they had a program where you could order books through your class. And the books that uh, they had available that I ordered all the time were the small pocketbook sized uh, Marvel reprints uh, that would reprint all the early Steve Ditko Spider-Man, the first six issues of Hulk, first six issues of Fantastic Four, all that stuff. So my first exposure was reading all that uh, classic stuff. Uh, When I actually started going into the comic shop or the corner liquor store and buying comics off the shelf or off the rack, that was right around the time that Frank Miller started writing Daredevil. And that was mind-blowing to me because I felt like I was reading something very adult. And it kind of was a point where, similar to what you were saying, Joe, it started to get away from that over-exposition of comics where literally the characters were doing something and there would be a thought balloon over their head of them talking about what it is they're doing. <laughs> and right. yeah, it seemed pointless because I'm looking the at the art. Because I was, what? You know, that's the yellow boxes. The yellow boxes. Or the, literally yeah. Now, I don't mind that. And there are some writers that are still using that as a storytelling device because rather than using it as a narrative of like the character, you know, Peter Parker walked down the street and he saw such and such. Instead of doing it like that as like a third person narrative, they're using it more as a of a device where they are using it to kind of set a, a tone or a mood or overlap um, some other narrative that is important to the story along with what you're seeing where you have to kind of figure out how these things fit together and rather than being just a very blatant narrative. But the idea was back then, right around the time Frank Miller started doing Daredevil and then eventually it went into Watchmen and, and Dark Knight Returns and all that stuff like that, all the, the heavy hitter dark stuff from the later 80s, it marked that turn where it went from being so exposition-y to being more show and don't tell. And a lot of comics now are really have moved to that other way. And it's good because it's showing the evolution of storytelling rather than being just trapped in that small box of this is how you write comics and these are the tools that you use, the thought bubbles, the dialogue bubbles, and the, the yellow box narratives. But my problem with it is that sometimes there are some comics coming out, and I think that the big two is mostly guilty of this. Some comics that are coming out that are so far to the other end that they are forgetting that they are a storytelling medium within a comic book frame, and they're trying too hard to be too similar to a movie. Like they are yeah, literally, yeah, like they are literally setting up these pages almost as if they are a movie storyboard. And no, I agree. And I don't, I don't think this is the best time for the big two, but I think that there's so much great stuff going out outside the big two that I oh, still think exactly. it's the best time for comics because of yes. the others. See, yeah. so I, dis- I disagree, Roger. I think that not only is the stuff going on outside better than it's ever been, I think that the good stuff at the big two 
is better than it's ever been. Oh yeah, I think when they hit, when they hit for sure. But they have a lot more misses. Well, I don't know if they have well, more misses. They have a lot of misses right now. Yeah, but that's because of the volume. You know, when you create that much volume, you you have to have misses. You can't it can't sure. all be great. Sure. You know, you got to have some Brussels sprouts. Even though I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, so like one thing. So like, here's where it really just to tie this up. Like, so like. Going back to Claremont X-Men, like the Morlocks. The Morlocks are a group of deformed mutants that live in these abandoned subway tunnels under New York, or sewers even. I don't know if they're subway tunnels or sewers, under New York. And, you know, they're led by this woman, Calypso. And she's very two-dimensional. Like, when you go back and read it, um, the characters, like, there's just as good as the, the overarching story of Claremont's X-Men run is like when you get down into these individual issues, there's a whole lot of like just stuff where you could tell he wanted to go far with this and his editors wouldn't let him because it's going to take them out of being suitable for that 10 to 13 range. And I feel like comics today are not as, um, as not as handcuffed by the, those restraints. And also to that respect, if you have a character like that, that's a little more of a background character and not one of the main characters, you can't dedicate pages and pages and pages to develop them and flesh them out and make them real. You literally have to just do a quick, you know, in and out with that character and set them up quickly with some dialogue, whatever, to show that, oh, this is the protagonist or this is uh, the villain, this is the comic relief and just have them fit a certain mold rather than really flesh them out. You, you couldn't do that. I think that there are writers now that are much better at being able to do that in a much smaller space where no, characters I, seem real. Well, and frankly, if you're comparing to like the silver and gold age, I think the people creating comics now take it more seriously. The people creating comics now grew up wanting to write comics. A lot of the people that were writing comics in the gold and silver age were people that wanted to do other mediums and kind of fell into comics and and they look even they themselves look down on the medium. Yeah. They wanted to either write serious novels or work in serious, uh, uh, advertising and marketing and famously Stan Lee didn't go by his real name because he didn't want his real name attached to comic book work. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a throwaway medium. No, I, I get that. What I'm, what I'm saying, the reason I picked the Morlocks, I think my message got lost is, the reason I picked the Morlocks is because you could tell Claremont wanted to take these characters and make them more extreme, that he wanted them to be dangerous and scary and like monsters. And the, you know, whether it was the comic code or if it was Marvel's editors themselves, there was something, there's something restrained about these characters and they're great characters, but they're just not what I think was intended for the story. And that's my point is that, that there's just, I feel like they're less restrained now in their storytelling and these characters, you know, if a character is scary, they're actually scary. If a character is unhinged, they're actually unhinged as opposed to being like, kind of like the, the, I want to say the PG version. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. But what I, I would recommend if you've never done it, is go back and read Frank Miller's Daredevil because that definitely did not feel PG at all. It felt very dark, very real, 
and very dangerous. And as far as but that was really go ahead. sorry, go ahead. Sorry. And as far as saying, that's that's so <laughs> that's really a watershed moment, right? Like that's what it's famous for is being the yes. the watershed moment for making and that. And there's one particular issue and one particular part of that issue that, as far as really maturing and evolving the storytelling of comics, it's. Uh, issue 181, the death of Electra issue. And there's one part at, at, towards the end where he's after Electra is killed by Bullseye. Daredevil goes after Bullseye. Spoiler, <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> for, for a book that's what, 40 some years old? Okay. <laughs> at, he go, And then he immediately dons the costume and goes out after Bullseye. And they fight for like. I can't remember five, six, seven pages, something like that. There is not one bit of dialogue in it. Nothing. All it is, is just visuals of them fighting and, you know, over high tension wires, rooftops and everything like that. And no dialogue, only sound effects. And the sound effects are used in a way that it builds so much tension. Uh, literally like, um, there is a scene where they're fighting on high tension wires uh, above the elevated train with the sound effect going th all throughout the pages across the two panel spread of the clack at a clack at a clack at a clack at a to build the tension. And there was not a stitch of dialogue anywhere. And rather than doing what a lot of people do where it's just, oh, no dialogue, you just kind of flip through the pages until you find words, you are just following it by panel by panel by panel because it is very much telling a story, but without any words whatsoever. So I really put that book and that part of that book as like a major turning point as far as the storytelling device of comics go and what they can be. And, like. I, and, and I think, and I think that comes back to what I was saying. I think that kind of reaffirms some of my argument for this being kind of a, a great agent comics is that was a watershed issue. And that was a big deal when it happened. And it was so great because that happened. And now that, type of storytelling. Now, obviously not always to that quality, but that type of storytelling is really somewhat the norm now. And so even though that was obviously revolutionary, your, your, your baseline has improved over that because that's now how it's viewed and that's how things are written. Yeah. So in 10 to 20 years, we will be looking at the books from the past, you know, several, just these past few years, and we'll be seeing what the watershed comics of now are. In hindsight. And I think Tom King's vision is one of them, by the way. I agree. The importance of Frank Miller, Alan Moore, Chris Claremont to what comics have become is indisputable. Again, again, like I'm fine with wordiness. Like I, I love reading Watchmen. It's great. What I take issue with is when I spend 15 minutes reading a comic book because every single panel has an explanation of either what's happening in the panel or what the why the character is doing what they're doing? Explain they're explaining their motivation. Yeah, and um, I think that was like my overarching point, my two overarching points, and I think that's been made clear. So, all right, I think that's going to wrap things up for us, guys. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I think we all had some really good choices here. Yeah, it's been a great trip down memory lane for the last ten years. And we look forward to doing another one. Another, We'll do another list show for you if we make it another 10. Yay. <laughs> and uh, that's going to do it. Wrap things up. Thank you for taking a peek behind the shop counter with us. And uh, we will see you soon. Goodbye.
Goodbye. This show is part of the Geek Nerd Network. Geek Nerd Network. Find more shows like it at geeknerdnetwork.com. This is Janet. Hey there, my name is Tyler. I'm Mary. I'm Aaron. And I'm Kylie. And we'd like to invite you to join us in the Fortress of Comicitude podcast, where we discuss such topics as... Creator Focus, where we pull a comic creator's name out of a bucket and talk about their history and books they've worked on. We also do what's called the Comic Book Club, where we pick a book, read page by page, and analyze how cool it is. And Was It Really That Bad?, where we take an old comic book movie from the past that got horrible reviews and decide if it was truly, really that bad. Plus creator interviews, movie reviews, top five lists, and so much more. So join us in the Fortress of Comictude.